Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, my friends. Today, we have a very special episode that I'm excited to share with you. We will be speaking with Eileen Kamensky. You may be familiar with her work in the breast cancer blog community and her personal blog, The Cancer Bus. She's also a poet, incredibly active on Twitter, and her and I connected over social media and have become fast friends. What's unique about today's conversation is that I wanted to talk to Eileen about her poetry and you know, being a writer and utilizing expressive writing as a way to healing. And what we actually discovered in this conversation is her incredible story of being one of the unicorns, diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer de novo, thinking it was food poisoning and after a misdiagnosis because she had dense breast tissue. But that's a whole other episode, by the way, and I'll link to it below. But her story takes us from the beginning when she finds out in the hospital that she has metastatic disease and three months to live. It has been seven years since her initial diagnosis, and I am so thrilled to be talking to Eileen. Eileen shares with us her seven lines of treatment, which include capsidamine, Taxol, Picray, just to name a few that we're going to be talking about today. There are so many great golden nuggets in this episode from advocating for yourself, contacting the pharmaceutical companies to see if you can get a discount on the treatments because we all know they are so expensive, as well as really forging that strong relationship with your oncology and medical care team. Before we get started, I want to remind all of you to sign up for our weekly newsletter. You could do so directly from our website at survivingbreastcancer.org, and be sure to check out all of our upcoming free webinars and events that we host, again, at survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. This is where you can find information on our very popular and signature programs, such as our Thursday Night Thrivers Meetup, where we meet up every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern our monthly book club where we read nothing to do with breast cancer. We choose a variety of genres and come together once a month just to hang out, chill, and discuss literature, books, romantic novels, mysteries, etc. We also have our Movement Monday classes. And so I would encourage you again to check out our calendar of events because there's going to be something for everybody and we love for you to get involved. We're here for you from day one and beyond. Welcome to the conversation. I've always been a writer. So my mother actually saved my first poem from when I was seven years old. And I wrote it to her when my parents got divorced and I gave it to her as a gift. And I remember sitting on my radiator in New York City, looking down and watching my dad's footprints in the newly fresh snow and the drag of his suitcase behind him. And I wrote this poem to her, and it was called, What It Is For You And Me. And it went, what it is for you and me, what we do every day, is it the way we play, or is it the way we share fair and square? What is it that we do that makes us so happy? Is it the ways we learn of the world, or is it just you and me? And I wrote that when I was seven, which my mother thought was fairly deep. And I look back on it thinking, yeah, for a seven-year-old, that's pretty deep. So whenever I've gotten into something traumatic or also conversely very joyous, you know, like a new life with my husband or the new house or being in nature here has led to all sorts of different 
branches, if you will, no pun intended, in my poetry and in my writing, because everything, every layer in your life just adds into your writing. So that also led into my career. It also led into my my um, degree, which is in English and philosophy, which also led into, you know, so one thing led to the next, led to the next, led to the next. And it's always just been a huge part of my life. Anybody who's got a lot of energy and then is thrown into a world where your energy is either absorbed from you or taken from you in some way, meaning I'm in this sort of, we're constantly waiting. We're waiting not not for death per se, because I don't really focus on the death part. I think once you do that, that's where you're going to wind up. Um, If you focus on the life part, that's where you're going to remain as long as you can. And I know a lot of people have different philosophies than that. Actually, my blog name is funny. It came from, I got tired of people saying, well, you could be hit by a bus. And I kept going, no, you couldn't. And so I actually looked up the World Health Organization's um, statistics for about 20 years on people who had been hit by buses globally. And I think it was like one in 7 million or something like that, which is way different from one in 40,000, which is the number of women who get breast cancer. And I think it's actually higher than that now since the WHO has... um, updated their statistics but that in and of itself says something i think for sure for sure so yeah that's why i named it the cancer bus do any of your poems or the blogs that you write about talk about your experience with stage four breast cancer it's funny because at the end of one poem i actually wrote i felt like my face was an pie after i'd gotten out of the hospital mm. you know that look of like just pale you know uncooked crust right that's just not quite right yeah yeah it's just it's uh, this weekend was one of those weekends I was actually asleep for three days did not wake up could not get out of bed just really wasn't doing well and it turned out I was just over toxic um because I had gone off of my medication for um I took a medication break and sometimes that's a good thing And sometimes that's not such a good thing. This time it turned out to be not such a good thing. And it was a forced thing. Um, I was actually going to Stanford for four and a half years. And I love Stanford. I will never switch from Stanford again, ever, ever, ever. I've learned my lesson. I went to a different teaching hospital. I went on to a drug called Peak Ray, which is for the PIK3CA mutation that comes after so it's not you know like um like the BRCA mutation it's Mm -hmm. it's a it's a post um cancer mutation that comes with you know taking your medications and doing all these things it changes DNA on your RNA and so I wound up with the PIK3CA mutation which gave me access to PCRAE Mm -hmm. well PCRAE is sixteen thousand dollars a month now Even if you're on Medicare and you're paying your Part D, which is your, you know, your drug um, copay stuff, which I do privately through Blue Shield, 5% catastrophic is still $800 a month. Now, even at the highest level, um, your 
Medicare is not your Medicare, but your SSDI, your Social Security disability is twenty five hundred bucks. That's the max you're going to get. And I maxed out years ago. Like I stopped. I didn't even think about it at the time when I was like forty two and I stopped paying into Social Security. It didn't even occur to me what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that meant was I would get the highest, you know, amount that you could get, which is about 2,500 bucks. And that's a third of what you get to live on. And what they wanted at this particular teaching hospital. And the reason I went there was because we moved and my oncologist wanted me at a hospital that was closer to somewhere in Northern California where we had moved. And so I did that. And I did it for six months and I was terribly unhappy where I was. Um, for the six months that I was there, the physician spent all of uh, 75 minutes with me over six months, mostly on video, mm. which to me is not quite enough for somebody with MDC. I'm sorry. You're, you're going to have to see your oncologist a little bit more than that. My oncologist at Stanford sees me one hour per month regardless of anything. And in fact, was talking to the oncologist and had established a relationship with her about me and warned her up front. He said, she is an informed patient. She's going to ask questions. She's going to push. She's going to ask her what she wants. She's going to look at clinical trials before you even know they're out there. And you're going to have to come back with answers because she's not going to stop until you give her a complete answer. And I wasn't getting complete answers. And what really turned my stomach was this. When it came down to it, Stanford would always cover the copay for me. If it was over a certain, if it was over like 300 bucks, they would cover it for me. They'd figure out a way either through um, the patient advocacy network or a program that they had in place. But they never asked me for anything. They knew I was on um, Social Security and Disability and Medicare because you can't be on Medicare without being on Social Security. It's just one goes hand in hand. You have to be on Social Security for two years before you're able to get Medicare. Yeah, Medicare. So you're on disability two years. Two years go by private insurance, which I was on through um, Covered California. And then um, I was automatically put onto Medicare. So the most thing they called, things they called me for were billing. And for this particular program they had. So what I did was I reached out to Novartis. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm sure Novartis has a program. Sure enough, they did. Within two weeks, they had me covered. I had a two-pack in FedEx within a week of signing up. And three weeks later, in fact, today or tomorrow, I have my next four-pack coming from them, all for free. Wow. So it doesn't even go through my insurance, which is great. So I'm covered through them through however long I'm on it. And I suspect that they know that T-Gray lasts roughly a year, give or take, in the research that I've done. Although I'm what's known as a, an exceptional responder or a unicorn. So I'm going on seven years now, which wow. is amazing. I, I can't even believe how my life has changed in seven years. It's so inspiring to hear these unicorn stories. And I know sometimes we think about, well, why her? Why not me? Why me, not her, et cetera. But what are some of the key takeaways that you've garnered over these last seven years? Two things are important. First of all, 
is to share the knowledge that I have, to share the experiences that I have, both through the blog and through any other way that I can, through podcasts, through writing guest blogs, through talking to people, through doing support groups, through answering questions personally. No matter how you can get that information out there, I think it's incumbent on the exceptional responders to help the newer diagnosed or the newly diagnosed and also people who are, you know, in the midst of going through a change in their protocol, because we can go through six, seven, eight, nine, ten protocols in our lifetime. And I'm now on my seventh. So, yeah, there's still a few left, thankfully. And then there's always clinical trials. So there's always hope. Hope is such an important part of the equation. You've been talking a lot about your positive experience with your current hospital medical care team. What makes your oncologist so exceptional? Not only did he hug me when I came back, so did the nurse practitioner, so did the receptionist. This is Stanford, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not talking about, you know, junior league here. We're talking about major teaching hospital. He said, I learned so much from you as a patient. And he goes, and I missed having you here as a patient. And I'm glad that you're back. And I'm glad that you trust me. And I think the emotional trauma that that certain physicians and certain, you know, larger institutions can put you through, through lack of personalized medicine is absolutely 100% critical to patient psychosocial health, quality of life and so on and so forth. In fact, I found out on PRE you're supposed to have an endocrinologist because you get diabetes. Sure. Well, I wasn't assigned an endocrinologist. Immediately upon going back to Stanford, I was assigned an endocrinologist. So it, there's such a huge difference in the quality of care, and you do have a choice. Right. You're not stuck with who you're with if you're not happy. You can get a second or a third or a fourth opinion if you need it. You can find another place to go. A lot of people I know feel so stuck where they are. And I say to them, you know, if a little travel is necessary for better care, it's your life. Speaking of being a unicorn and having been on a number of line of treatments, can we actually go back in time? Would you be able to take us back to the beginning and tell us about your initial diagnosis? I can. So um, we thought I had food poisoning. Uh, My husband took me to the hospital. He literally threw me over his shoulder, threw me in his car, because the only time I had been in the hospital before that was when I was born, literally. I have no cavities. I had never broken a bone. It was very unusual for me to be sick. I rarely had the flu. My general practitioner had determined that this was food poisoning. It wasn't. It was ascites. I couldn't stop throwing up. I couldn't keep anything in one end or the other end Mm. and went to the hospital, was totally dehydrated. They checked me in. They did an MRI. They said, "Mm, we're keeping her overnight. They did a CT scan. They called my husband back at 4.30 in the morning after letting him go at 3.30 and said, we need to talk. And the first question they asked me was, do you drink? And I said, what do you mean do I drink? Because ascites actually happens from liver cirrhosis as well. Okay. And I said, uh, 
no, actually, I drink some wine once in a while, but I can't because I've had prediabetes, so I, I don't drink. And they're like, well, we think you've got about two to three months to go. You've got stage four metastatic breast cancer. It's in every one of your organs. We're going to drain the ascites and redo the CT scan, and we'll let you know. The next thing I knew, I came out of surgery. I had a port in me. They said, oops, our mistake. It's only in your bones, only. I had three tumors in my right breast. And the reason was I had two years before had an, a mammogram that was inconclusive. It was inconclusive because I have heterogeneously dense breasts. And to find a tumor in a heterogeneously dense breast is like finding a snowball in a snowstorm. And so it was a miss there. It was a miss on the prior one. My grandmother died of metastatic breast cancer, but they don't see that as first line. My father died of brain cancer, still not seeing that as first line, still not seeing it as something to you know delve into a little bit more. And so two years later, there I am in the hospital, um, not having a path in front of me. They're like, you know, can your career move on, retire, you're done. I, I remember not crying in the hospital. I remember crying when I got home. And from that point on, my life was completely, completely different. It was like I went from being this live person with a career and a future, and I was only 49 at the time, you know, at least as far as I was concerned, you know, 20 more years of working ahead of me, I, I just didn't know what to do with myself. And, and that is where you just kind of get, it's like you're dropped off a UFO onto some planet, you don't even know what it is. And that was when I was diagnosed. There's no rush. Once you're diagnosed with MBC, you're not in a big hurry, so don't worry about it. And it's like, what do you mean, don't worry about it? Of course I'm worried about it. The one number I never looked at until much later was what the average life expectancy was. Because I knew that would be a big, fat mistake. And boy, if I had looked at it before three years, I probably wouldn't be here right now because I would be focused on that moment. Because right. the average life expectancy is still only 2.6 years. Right. Now I'm in year seven. What they said to me in the hospital was, go home and get your affairs in order. And I said, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. I'll focus on some other things. Thanks. And they looked at me like I was nuts. Of course, my husband and my friends all looked at me like, of course, she's not going to think about that. She's going to think about what she can do, not what she can't do. Exactly. But, you know, I did all the right paperwork and I did, you know, all the things they, they enforce for you to do and I did do a will mm -hmm. and I did do a you know what do I want to do when I die kind of thing and sure. you know I have very specific instructions on what I want to do and where I want to be but other than that once you get that done there's no need to focus on it well thank you so much for sharing your initial diagnosis and how traumatic to be diagnosed in the hospital thinking it was food poisoning now you mentioned that you were on your seventh line of treatment what other lines of treatment were you on lines one through six. So the first line of treatment was the Loda, with, which is capsidabine. Um, 
I was on that for three months. I was NED for six months, literally NED. Wow. No evidence of disease, nothing in my bones, nothing in my breast. Everybody's jaws were hanging. And then about uh, oh, six months later, they saw some light up in my bones again. So I was on um, Zomeda, um, Exgiva, and um, Vasilidex okay. for quite some time. So I was on that sort of roller coaster for a while. And that kept things at bay. I was on t- good old Taxol, and I was on that once a week for six months. Actually, the chemos seemed to do really well for me in kicking it out mm-hmm. and then getting me onto a regimen. And so that's kind of been the roller coaster. It's kind of like kick it out with some chemo, get me onto a regimen, wait till it pops back up, usually through my liver. My liver will kick off some ascites. Once the ascites shows up, then I'll wind up back in the hospital and on some kind of IV chemo or some kind of chemotherapy and then back onto a regimen. So that's been kind of the three and a half year mark of everything. And so started that way, middle that way, just recently that way. I am the kind of person that will never let my doctors make my decisions for me. I will always make the final decision. And my current oncologist who's been with me almost five years now is perfectly comfortable with that. He sees me as the leader of my team. And the leader and captain of your team, you should be. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us today. I know this will be one of many conversations to come. And thank you everyone for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. If you enjoyed today's episode, hop on over to iTunes, give us five stars and write a review. And also follow us on social media to continue the conversation. Our Twitter handle is SBC underscore ORG. And our Instagram handle is Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word. Until next time, keep on thriving.